0: Welcome to Making Special Education Actually Work, an online publication presented in blog and podcast form by KPS for Parents. As an added benefit to our subscribers and visitors to our site, we're making podcast versions of our text-only blog articles so that you can get the information you need on the go by downloading and listening at your convenience where the use of visual aids, legal citations, and references to other websites are used to better illustrate our point and help you understand the information. These tools appear in the text-only portion of the blog post of which this podcast is a part. You will hear a distinctive sound during this podcast whenever reference is made to content that includes a link to another article, website, or download. Please refer back to the original blog article to access these resources. Today is November 5, 2020. This podcast is titled, Podcast Interview, Catherine Michael, Attorney at Law and Author. In this podcast, I interview Catherine Michael, who practices special education law in three different states and has recently written a new book, The Exceptional Parent's Guide to Special Education. Catherine and I discuss the enforcement of special education law in general, as well as during these unprecedented times with school shutdowns in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. First of all, thank you so much for being on this podcast with me. I don't get to interview folks very often and it's always fun when I get to and it's always very informative because I think having all of us who do this kind of work, you know, talking these things that through out loud and just speaking to what's going on and, and how we think that's going to affect the, the students that we work for and the families that depend on us. I just think it's a really constructive use of time. So I really appreciate you being here. If you could could just you just introduce yourself and give a, just your background, your history of how you've come into this line of work and what it is that you do now
1: oh yeah absolutely so my name is katherine michael i'm the managing partner of a law firm called connell michael kerr and we work in a multitude of of states and um have attorneys licensed in in several states as well and what i do is for the past 20 years i've worked in education law or representation of children and um and a lot of that involves Um, filing educational due process cases against schools, um, personal injury, tort actions against schools, and sometimes group homes, residential facilities, and also advocating for children with special needs, for instance, the legislatures in in several states and at a national level. And, you know, I got into this line of work. um, My background had been in hospital risk management, and I got into this um, because we were seeing a lot of children who had really substantial issues. Um, whether they had a diagnosis of cancer and were now getting cranial radiation or having a tumor removed. And we saw how uncooperative schools were. And, And back then, it was really quite shocking to me that we would find a school district who wouldn't want to provide a child a homebound program or a school district that would claim that Cancer is not a disability, and this child doesn't need to be eligible. Oh, my gosh. And and that was really, right, that was really fascinating to me because as someone who had not worked in education at that point and was working with hospital systems, that was really shocking because I think all of us believe that our perceived schools are supposed to be very pro-child. They are there to ensure educational services for children. And, you know, the first case I took was a child who had um, cancer and, um, was just really, really surprised how hard it was to get that young man program. Um, and thereafter started taking cases involving children who had learning disabilities and really finding, um, how substantial a need this was. And it had a snowball effect and has kept me in it to this day.
0: Well, yeah. And a lot of us come into this, uh, who are professionals from these, these paths where we, we encounter these challenges and we're like, wait a minute, what? And then we see how the, the system is constructed, how it's been designed, and and um, what the rules actually are. And so I would imagine coming from a medical scenario, I mean, in the medical realm, you've got insurance billing rules and all those kinds of things. And so there's somewhat of a similarity in that you've got this compliance standard that has to be met in order for things to happen. And when you look at what those rules are in special education and you know, and you you understand what the intent may have been, but then and and you and I spoke briefly of this before we started the interview that enforcement is really the the question here. So if you could speak about that, that yeah. would be. yeah,
1: enforcement is a huge issue. And I think that um, because there is so little enforcement of the laws um, on the book, we've have found that basically schools have run run amok. So for parents who are listening, The main law is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And that is a federal law, which means that every state has to follow it. They can't have a state law that restricts any of the rights under a federal law. And every state in the United States has basically what we call codified that law into their own state law. The only thing that they can do is add additional rights for parents. Um, For instance, uh, the state of Michigan actually extended how long a student can be in special ed. So it is age 22 um, under the federal law, Michigan made it 26. Um, Other states change, for instance, when a parent requests an independent educational evaluation. California um, basically has that that if a parent requests an independent educational evaluation, that the school gets a reasonable time to respond. Other states, like Indiana, say a school has to respond within 10 days. So there's some of these minor changes um, in the law that are, that are supposed to, in some states like Indiana or Michigan, give those parents additional rights. But also, the way these laws are designed is that the only enforcers of them are parents. And that means that parents are basically their own private attorney generals, that parents are the equivalent of the cops on the road with the radar to catch the speeding cars. Your state Department of Education is not going to be looking over your child's IEP and saying, wow, your child has a lot of issues and they only have one goal, or they're not receiving any direct speech services, or they're not receiving any direct um, special educational services, or your child shouldn't be in a special education room all day long. That's, there's something called the least restrictive environment, which says we need to, to the to maximum extent we can, Them with their general education peers. So what I think a lot of parents don't realize is your State Department of Education isn't doing that. Your Federal Department of Education isn't doing that. No one has that obligation to enforce these laws other than the parent bringing a private action called an educational due process complaint. So schools have all of these laws under IDEA. And just to give, you know, for a parent, I'm sure if if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a basic overview of it, but IDEA has requirements for what's called a free appropriate education. And that basically encompasses that your child is going to have an IEP that has challenging, ambitious goals um, in light of their circumstances that has related services. Related services would be counseling, social work services, parent training, um, speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, um, the least restrictive environment. That if your child needs a one-on-one aid in order to be um, in a general education environment, they're supposed to do that versus moving your child to a resource room. Um, if your child needs a therapeutic day placement or a residential placement, That's also to be provided by the school. There are all sorts of procedural safeguards. If a school refuses your request, let's say for a one-on-one aid or a specialized program for dyslexia, they actually have to provide you written notice saying what data they're relying upon to deny this, everything they've considered, and they have to provide this to you in writing. So there are all these laws on the books, okay? And and regardless of, of where you live, When we say ideas that federal law, this applies to you and it applies to your child in a public school. And as you know, going back again, but the only enforcer of this law, the only enforcer who can actually call a school to task on it is you as a parent. And that mechanism, as I said a second ago, is what's called an educational due process complaint. And that's a complaint that is filed with your state department of education a state appoints a hearing officer to determine if that program is in place. And you know something we discussed before we started as well as, is that most parents have no idea that they have these rights and thus most of these laws are right now not being enforced. There are some states where there is less than one due process case a year. So when schools are developing these IEPs, being that there's no real enforcement mechanism, um, other than in some states, like the timeline, they have to have it a yearly meeting. We're seeing really horrible consequences of that, I think, across the state.
0: Well, and and the, now that with school closures and shutdowns, that certainly hasn't improved things at all. And so, what are you seeing? What are you seeing now that's different than before the shutdown started?
1: I think the the biggest problem I'm seeing is a complete lack of services, and that is where um, school districts, for instance, w- that have gone entirely virtual, um, have students who are just not able to access the services. They may be so cognitively impaired they're not able to do a computer program. Right. In some of those cases, I'm seeing schools basically just throw up their hands and say, well, you know, um, when we come up with a program, we'll let you know. And that's really contrary to law, and there are a lot of, of things that parents need to be doing right now. That is one of the biggest problems. The other one is where parents whose children were getting, for instance, speech therapy, school is saying, sorry, we, we can't provide that right now. And in fact, they really can. I mean, virtual speech therapy has been done for years and it's something that, that should be being done. Right. Um, and then lastly, I mean, we're, we're seeing schools where kids are coming back to school, but we'll have a school that, that you know, I, I think for good reason has a mask mandate, but they don't understand that there are clearly going to be children who cannot wear masks, right? That right. Are too cognitively impaired or they have really significant health issues. And I've definitely seen a lot of those issues crop up, which is really quite shocking to me. Because some of these situations, you know, quite honestly, when when we look at a child who, for instance, has it has a, a tube down their throat, um, the fact that a a school would even argue with a parent as to whether they're going to try and put a mask on this child. Is is you know shocking right. that they'll tell a parent that a child can't come to school. So that I think has been another one of the really big issues.
0: Yeah, and we've what we've run into out here in California is it's hit or miss. It depends on the school district as to whether they're going to do the right thing or not and but we have some school districts that are just flat out refusing to do any in-person services at all under any circumstances even though we had the governor's order that came out in April said that any student that required in-person services in order to continue to learn and to receive educational benefits just as a matter of faith that those in-service in-person services still had to be provided and the people who would do it would be considered essential infrastructure workers. Workers. But we have districts saying that, oh, no, there's a, something else that came out in July that says we don't have to do that. And it doesn't say that at all. And so um, right. they're just waiting until they get court ordered to actually do it before they'll comply. They're waiting for somebody to pull that trigger. They're not willing to assume the risk. It's a risk management decision. They don't want to assume the liability of choosing to do it and then have somebody get sick and say, you made me go to work and then, then I got COVID. And then they're going to turn around and the school district as the the employer. And so what we're seeing is that a lot of it has to do with human resources issues and unionized employees, you know, rightfully insisting on safe ways of getting things done and satisfaction not being achieved at that level, which then impairs the system's ability to carry out its mandate because the workers it relies upon, there's no agreement as to how they're going to do it until they get court ordered. They're just not gonna. And so that's what we're seeing out here. And it's weird. And I also got OCR complaints and state compliance complaints as well pending because the due process system is now so flooded that you know the attorneys I work with can't file anything new until March and so it's it's like okay well we've got to find other avenues to still somehow enforce all of this in a compliance investigation or an OCR investigation has a 60-day timeline so at least that's something
1: yeah well and I think that that is again part of the of the big problem here is just when we have schools that they know that the consequences to them are going to be really minimal. That's why we'll often see them wait for court orders versus getting creative. So when I say getting creative, for schools who are not able to serve, for instance, cognitively impaired kids, they have uh, problems where they are not able to get the personnel in and that type of thing, they can actually pay for we have private therapeutic day placements. They can offer a parent sort of what we would call a continuum of services and placements, right? Um, which is one of the requirements of federal law. And they can actually say to a parent, look, we do not have the infrastructure right now or we don't have the ability to serve this child. Here are four or five private placements that we can contract with um, if that's something you're interested in. So and and we we see that happen in some places and we don't see it happen in others. And, we're
0: seeing that also yeah, with I'm non-public thinking. agencies being able to provide in-home services like behavioral services. Yeah. Yeah, same yes. thing.
1: Yeah, I'm actually a a big fan of that happening. When I see school districts that are really willing to think outside of the box to say, well, we have an absolute obligation to serve these kids. How do we do it, right? Where they're actually looking at it more along the lines of this is our job, this is our role, how do we perform it even if we don't have the personnel right now? Right. And so, I mean, I, I certainly, when I see school districts going above and beyond like that in and, and situations where, you know, you can see, um, how difficult it is, I mean, I'm looking at those districts and saying, you know, at least they're making these attempts. But, you know, the, the problem we see over much of the country is school districts basically saying, if a parent, if after all this is done, brings a due process, our worst case scenario is we're just going to have to provide compensatory education. So I'm seeing some school districts really, you know, as I said a moment ago, not provide anything. Right, And so, you know, if you're a parent who's listening to this and you're saying, you know, my school district may be providing part of the program or not any of it, I mean, the thing you need to be doing right now is documenting it. Yes. Because you are absolutely going to have a claim for those compensatory hours that your child should have been getting. So if your IEP had your child receiving 124 minutes a week of what we would call sort of direct special educational services, like we would... Expect to see if you're talking about a child with a specific learning disability who's getting some of that one on one reading intervention or math intervention. Those are the minutes that are going to be ordered. If you have a situation where your child's not receiving that, or they were in a resource room and we were talking about a full time special ed placement, they're not able to access the computer. What you're going to want to do is just really document those hours that you're missing. Email the school or your child's school and ask, you know, again, if your child's not receiving anything, what options are available? You know, if they don't have the infrastructure, are they going to offer a private therapeutic day placement or a home-based placement at this point? Um, And that's, you know, sending it, for instance, a registered behavior technician or if your child has autism, a BCBA or, you know, another individual who's trained in that you know, behavior modification into the home to work on the child's behavioral goals, social skills goals, academic goals. Um, what is the school able to do at this point? And you're certainly going to want to ask those questions and you're going to want to push because again, it, it's their absolute duty to be providing this right now. To the extent that they are unable, there are rural areas where, you know, there are no ABA centers, there are no you know, therapy right. day placements, there are no private placements, quite honestly and we have schools that are saying, you know, we don't have enough staff, you know, it's really a a very, very problematic situation for families in those those places. And that's where the parent just really needs to be documenting to the best extent they can, you know, what skills their child is losing, how many minutes that their child isn't receiving, what they're doing, any cost that they are right now incurring, like for instance, for parents who are having to go out and and buy educational items. These are all things that you're gonna to wanna to keep track of as a parent so that as things return to normal, you can sit down initially with your school at an IEP meeting and say, we need to plan for the compensatory services, number one. Number two, here are the costs that I had to privately pay that I'm asking to be in reimbursed for.
0: Right, well, and I don't know how other states are doing it, but in California, one of the things that we had a Senate bill pass um, over the summer that now requires all IEPs to have a con- contingency plan an emergency plan for if schools shut down for emergency reasons for 10 or more days and so now in hindsight being 2020 obviously um that uh, should something else ever arise like another pandemic or whatever that would, re- or, you know, a natural disaster that would require a school closure for 10 or more days, that there is already a backup plan of what to do for each kid yeah. on an IEP. And so I don't know that other states have codified anything like that, but California has. And I think that's very valuable. And the same body of law that produced that, I believe also produced a requirement that um, there's going to have to be an analysis of how much compensatory education and every special ed kid in california is due because it's assumed that everybody will have suffered in some kind of way and that everybody will have lost yeah. services and so it's it, the iep teams are now legally beholden to calculate that once things you know once the shutdown is over that yeah. varies from community to community and i we now have like i'm in ventura county where districts are not intending to open until january at the soonest and then you know you go don't go down into other counties and they've already got campuses partially open down in Orange County and so um, and some campuses are reopening for their most severely impacted students who desperately need that in-person support and uh, so the families have to sign all kinds of waivers and everything but then they can go back and they've got all of these empty classrooms that they can spread everybody out because not it's just a small number of students and then those kids can get that individualized support but then it's like you know how much of this was working on social skills and if they're all spread apart can we really do that you know and so it's it's still the challenge of how do we work on the goals and what i've seen too is some kind of distance learning program where you know the parents are expected to be the one-on-one aid and help their students log in and they do some kind of something on the on the internet but it doesn't have anything to do with anybody's goals it's just something to do it's just to give them a sense of routine in the absence of you know an actual plan and then they get very confused and then eventually the goals get worked in because enough people you know make a fuss about it that it starts to happen and now you switched everything up on them again now the instruction is a whole new novel experience and you're transitioning them again into something new that, and unfamiliar and so it just seems to me that it's very disruptive and and it's disheartening to see that there's this little coordination I mean as many milestones as have been achieved and as many things that have been accomplished with making some of the system work this piece of it falling down is a real disappointment you know and and yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's disheartening Heartening. and but I think that parents need to know that there are people like you and me out there who understand it and we're trying to fight it we're trying to help them and it's not a lost cause that there is help out there If you could share uh, about your practice once again that would be very helpful.
1: Yeah so my law firm is Connell Michael Kerr and I am licensed in Michigan Indiana and Texas and our website is wwwdmklawfirm.com. And I also have recently, and I believe it's due out either in December or January, I'm not sure on the date, but I do know that we're having pre-order that the um, Exceptional Parents Guide to Special Education, where I basically have to, you know, put all of my advice on how parents should navigate this system um, in one place. Everything that I go over with parents and consultations how the process works. I've, I've put that together and created that as a book. And so that will be due out, again, it's either in December or January, but parents can get it through Amazon, Kendall, right um, I believe Barnes & Noble, a couple of the others. Um, but I know that should be available shortly, and I'll send you a link for that as
0: well. Very cool. Yeah, we'll include uh, the link but, with our post so that people can, can access that. That's a good thing to know.
1: Yeah, because, you know, I think I think the thing that parents need to remember is that they actually have power. When You know, when I use the term sort of private attorney general, the parents are basically acting as this. You know, that is the main message I want to impart to, to families is that most accountability is going to come from families standing up um, together and saying, you know, we are entitled to appropriate services for our children and and doing their research and coming to understand the system and asking for the things they're supposed to be getting. Right. And it's only by asking for it and schools really being held accountable that we're going, going to see the system change. And I think a lot of parents, right, and this is all of us, right, it's difficult to challenge people that we want to like us. And parents often want the teachers to like them. They want school staff to like them. And most people who go into teaching are very, very good people. But they're not taught the education laws. They're not in a lot of situations. We find, you know, teachers don't know how to design these schools for an IEP. They don't, you know, I had a teacher in a due process hearing last week say they didn't know that parent training or counseling could even be part of an IEP. So it's, it's really important for parents to take, sort of take the horse by the reins and, and learn how to navigate the system and start asking for these things in a way that's diplomatic and kind, um, but at the same time is assertive enough that your child is going to get what they need because quite honestly, you are your child's only advocate in the system. And unless you're asking for these things, the schools simply aren't going to provide them in in many, many
0: situations. It's just the sad reality of it. But I mean, this also goes to the fact that in a democracy, we're of the people, for the people, and by the people. And the parents are the people. The students are the people. And we shouldn't be afraid to take ownership of that responsibility. It's what we all agreed we wanted to live under. (laughs) You know, that's that's the the, the model we've chosen. And so I think for me, what makes me upset most about the way it's designed, it's not just that it, it it forces parents into litigation because that's what the rules require in order to resolve the dispute. It's the attitude that parents get from the school district personnel when they actually exercise that right, and the how dare you, and oh, you think you're, you know, whatever, and all of a sudden the parent becomes the bad guy for for simply exercising a right and following the rules because that's the only mechanism available to them, not because they want to. Nobody wants to do that, but, and if they do, you know, as as someone who, who works with families, uh, if somebody comes to me and says, I cannot wait to go to court, I'm like, well, okay, I hope you find somebody to help you with that, because it's not going to be me, cause, you know, it that's, you shouldn't right. be eager to go to court, it should be the, the, it should be the last resort, and so when parents are forced into that corner, and that's the only option they have left, and they, they exercise that right, and then they catch grief for it, like somehow they're the bad guy, I think that's what bothers me the most, because it's like you said, yeah. uh, you know, that their parents can be made out oh they're just this this disgruntled person and they just aren't happy with anything they're sad about being the parent of a special needs child i've heard that one a lot they're having a hard time coping and they they're angry and so they need someone to take it out on so they're suing the school district no you broke the law and you harmed their child that's why they're suing you (laughs) and so you know it's it's frustrating well and
1: yeah and to that end like i i want to you know, schools as well as parents, too. I, you know, I would so love if we could even stop thinking of due process as litigation or suing or something like that because these so parents cannot get damages under idea claims.
0: Exactly. What
1: you can get is, right, you can recover your attorney's fees. But in these cases, I mean, if we look at them in their most simplistic nature, it's simply the parents asking their state Department of Education to appoint an independent hearing officer to make a decision as to the appropriateness of their child's program. Right. Um, a parent doesn't need, although I would, I would, I certainly wouldn't recommend it, but. A parent doesn't need an attorney. And so, you know, we'll, I will often hear from schools that, you know, this is a litigious parent who filed a suit. And and I'm thinking, number one, this person hasn't filed a suit against you, right? A suit, you know, traditionally is a claim we would file in civil or, you know, federal court. Right. This is an administrative action that they've filed with an administrative agency. It's not even, and so, and then we hear, you know, a litigious parent they're not asking for money. You know, they may be asking for what we call an a an of faith a type of agreement where they can actually get the funds to place their child in an appropriate program. Right. But I think that is a mindset that we really need to have get schools over and also get parents, again, thinking, like, if you have a problem with Social Security or you had a problem with your child's Medicaid, you file an administrative action to get that corrected, right? You file with, you know, your your federal, you know, social security office, here, I need to get this adjudicated, or uh, somebody who's disabled. We don't think about it the same way.
0: No, not and at all. So
1: I think if we can, right. And so to me, that has always been fascinating as somebody who, who does this. When, you know, I have one that's in a hearing right now where the, you know, the parents, Quite honestly, only asking for an appropriate IEP and the necessary related services for her child. And that's, you know, when the school attorney is speaking to us, they're saying, you know, this is simply a litigious parent. And I'm thinking, you know, she's not asking for a dollar, just right. an appropriate program. So I, I really want to even reframe how parents think about these things. Again, um, schools are basically performing a government function. Yep. when we ask for the enforcement of these laws it's an administrative action and you're asking you know someone from your state simply to make that decision certainly they can be appealed to federal court and there's all you know all of the things
0: that you and I often see. Yeah, which, yeah, I've gone all the way to the Ninth Circuit on some of these things, and it's just like, are you kidding me? And uh, something that you had said before we got started as well is about how much money school districts are sometimes willing to throw at attorneys that they would never throw at services. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees to fight over a $7,500 education service. Yeah,
1: and you know, I've even seen that when a parent requests independent educational evaluation. and most states, those can go for around $3,500. In mm-hmm. um, some states, if we're looking at California and New York, it can be higher. But I've seen schools go through an entire due process, arguing that their evaluation is appropriate, where they've spent triple, quadruple what it would have cost them to provide the parents the evaluation. And when you look at that, you're really, what you're seeing is a school district saying, we want to make these this process so hard on parents that they don't even bother to ask when they talk to their friends they're like yeah this is what happened and that's not the role of a government entity right we shouldn't have government entities making it so difficult for individuals to get their, you know, their legal, you know, rights met. Right. If they don't even want to start that process. And that's why I think it's really important for parents to feel empowered and to realize that what they're asking for is supposed to already being, be provided to their child. And again, it becomes their job to enforce that. And you can do so in a, in a diplomatic way. Exactly. So there are a lot of, you know, yeah. And there are a lot of things you can do even outside of DuPont process but I don't want parents to be afraid of due process right and I, I want to reframe their thinking on that
0: topic I, I think that that's a really healthy perspective I wish we could reframe the thinking of the folks from the school district who come in and deliberately try to make it toxic in those instances where they do and you know and it isn't always that case yeah. you're right it I, I have been in situations where we've had to file for due process and it's almost one of these things where everybody in the IEP team knows that it was coming and nobody surprised by it and they're waiting to see what happens and it's almost like the administration is hoping the parent will file because then they can go to the school board and say look now will you listen to me and and it, because sometimes it's not that the that the department doesn't want to do it it's that their hands are tied by you know whoever holds the purse strings who doesn't who is not part of the IP process even though the team is the one vested with the authority to make those decisions so the politics that are going on behind the scenes become a toxifying effect and um, right. and then you have the attorneys that these individuals will hire and certain individuals you know birds of a feather flock together and you'll find people who are like-minded in their view of these things and i know that for from what i've seen the socioeconomic status of the community where the school district is can have an influence over whether they will comply or not in a school district where they don't have the money to throw at lawyers they'll go ahead and pay for the service they're not going to fight over it because they can't afford to but you get into an affluent community, especially when you're talking Southern California where you've got these little pockets of nouveau riche and their big McMansions and they're feeling all special because they have money. And the school district people it will tell them, oh, well, you don't want to go through public special education services. That's like a welfare service. You would do much better if you pay privately for the services yourself. You'll get much better results than what we can give you because ours is publicly funded. And so they play that, yeah. that mind trip on these welfare wealthy parents whose identities are all wrapped up in their their newly accomplished wealth and they they play on that and these parents are taken for a ride because then these parents are paying out of pocket hundreds of thousands of dollars for all of these specialists who are hovering like vultures just waiting because they know it's coming so you've got you know you've got all of these parties that are, are financially invested in enabling that that mechanism to play out the way that it does. And um, and then you have parents who suddenly realize after you know they've broken the bank and they don't have all that money anymore because they went all to private school and residential placement costs and things and to come to find out that they could have gotten all of that from the school district. But there's only yeah. a two-year statute of limitations and they've been paying out of pocket for the last 10 years. And so it's not until they're bankrupted by it that they realize the error in their judgment and then yeah. they can't go back and fully recover. And it just, there's all of these different games being played by by people who seem to be similarly motivated to to not serve while taking public dollars to hold a public service position and i think that this is as much a taxpayer issue as it is a parent issue because like you said we've already yeah. paid for these services to be provided those are our tax dollars and and those are the laws that our representatives passed in order to provide for these children and yet this is what we have instead and so i think that um yeah. One of the the parent advocates that I met a few years ago said she went up to Sacramento with a group of parents and sat down with state assembly members or state senators, I'm not sure who all she met with, but it was state officials, representatives, and said, you know, as when you take into account all of the people in California who have disabilities, and their immediate family members like their parents or you know the a spouse, do you consider them a constituency? And he said, no, the number is too small and she said, well, okay, what about all the people who are employed to support all of these people with disabilities and their families and their extended families? When you add all those people in, does that become a constituency to you? And he said, yes, at that point, now you're talking about a significant number of people. And so what that really communicates is, is all of this divisiveness that we've been seeing in our culture where, you know, we've got, Uh, people being pitted against each other for different ways of thinking about things and the things that make them unique from each other. And disability is no stranger to that experience. And what we're starting to realize is that the people who are trying to divide us are a minority and they're they're easily identified. We all have a, a, there's a common group of individuals who are all trying to pit us against each other and turn us into special interest groups when really we're just the majority. And if we all weave ourselves together and collectively advocate for each other, then we're a constituency. And I think yeah. that, that that is what, where we have to start thinking about these things now that it's not, oh, my disability rights versus your uh, LGBTQ plus rights. It's not my, my race rights versus your gender rights. You know, it's not a versus. It's no, everybody, everybody has equal rights. And that's the whole point. And, yeah. and so I think that, we, that our dialogue needs to shift in that direction. I know that I had this conversation in an IEP meeting the other day with the team. I had to file an OCR complaint. I'm like, look, this pandemic is not the apocalypse. You know, zombies are not at the door. Right. Democracy has not fallen. The rule of law still applies. And at no point did public health usurp civil rights. They are equal and important. So what are you guys going to do? And they're just like, uh, cause they don't know. Right. I mean, and, but they understood why I filed a complaint. They weren't mad at me. They're probably, they're actually, they're like waiting to see what comes of it. Cause maybe that's something they'll be given permission to do their jobs. You know, it's, it, nobody right. was angry about it. It was like, okay, well, yeah, that logically makes sense. And we'll just have to see what happens. And so I'm not necessarily right. in, in my situations. And of course I have relationships with a lot of these people. Cause I see the same people in the, in IP meetings for different kids over the span of decades. So we all know each other. So it's not like, you know, I'm going into a novel situation and I'm some stranger coming in and telling them what to do, because that can be, you know, people can become defensive and adversarial when that happens. Um, So I I have rapport, but, you know, even still, you know, the the fact that I can say something like that and everybody's like, yeah, you know what, you're right. We still are not empowered to do what you're asking us to do. And so that, that to me is very frustrating because I know that there's people who want to do the right thing and they can't are not being allowed to. Yeah. And I think that parents right. need to understand that, too, that, you know, not everybody's the enemy, but you got to be paying real close attention these days. I mean, would you agree? I mean, that parents just need to be I very would. discerning I about mean, who they can trust.
1: Well, absolutely. I think it's, again, it's, it's being discerning and it's also it's being educated as to what your child's needs are what you're asking for, and then un- also, you know, as, again, understanding that you are going to be the only one who really has your child's best interests at heart. That that's not to say that there aren't, you know, within school systems that really, you know, dedicated teachers, dedicated administrators who are doing their very, very best um, to ensure children are being educated appropriately. But at the end of the at, of the day, and I don't necessarily like that expression, but it really does come down to you are always going to know your child best and it is going to be up to you to enforce these laws.
0: Right. Because the teacher,
1: you know, you may have a great teacher one year and not another. And again, the school's interest isn't going to be the same as yours, right? There exactly. is going to be on their budgeting, the unions, um, you know, everything going on your interest is going to be on, is my child getting an appropriate
0: program? Right. I mean, in in terms of checks and balances, that's why the parents are such an important part of the team and are afforded so many rights and the protected right to meaningful parent participation and informed consent. I mean, all of those privileges and rights are there because that's meant to be a check and a balance against the rest of the system. And so, you know, if if the parents are being bamboozled and they, they are signing documents that they don't actually understand, Then those enforceable rights are not being honored and you know it's parents have to understand that they they have recourse and they need to educate themselves as to what what that is and ask I, i mean my favorite thing is when parents say okay well what are my rights under this circumstance and put a, puts it back on the school people yeah. to explain to them what their rights are, you know, and, and I think that that's a good strategy, because it is the burden of the school district to explain to parents what their rights are. They're supposed to be able yeah. to do that, and so, you know, if they put you, the parent on the spot, the parent should feel comfortable saying, well, you know what, I need to turn this around and put you on the spot for a minute, because I don't understand my right, and I'm not sure what I can right. do here. If you're savvy enough to know in, in some states, it's, you know, how the rules play out are different. In California, all you have to do is give 24-hour written notice um, minimum and you can audio record your child's IEP as a parent you can't video record but you can audio record and the the school district can't say no but they also have to record as well so that they, there's a backup copy and you know just for uh, authenticity yeah. reasons so different states have different rules about audio recording but you know I audio record every IEP meeting one because I have ADHD myself and I don't want to miss anything and so it's just a bad it's more of a safety net, because I very rarely have to go back and listen for my own account. But just to know that I can makes me less anxious during the meeting. But also because, you know, it ends up getting introduced into evidence if it does, if we do have to go to a due process hearing. And it's, you know, it's been a very powerful tool. Right.
1: And you can be clear as to what you asked for, why you asked for it, what the school's response was. Exactly. I I think that can be extremely
0: helpful and you know when you ha- if you go into an IEP meeting and you do have the you know you've legally made it okay to, to audio record given written notice or whatever is required and you're doing it lawfully and then you go in and say I don't understand my rights under this circumstance please explain them to me and then the explanation they give you is either going to be a good one or it's going to be a bad one and if it's a bad one you know yeah. the backup you know it's like okay well I didn't get the right answer but I got proof that they don't know what they're talking about and I'm not crazy. And so it becomes evidence. And I think the parents, and and certainly as an advocate, when I go into the to the IP process, I'm trying to solve the problem for real in the moment. But I'm also making the record along the way in case it doesn't get resolved. And so right. that by the time we arrive at due process, the, the trail, so the evidence trail is clear. If when they say no, their explanations are, you know, are whatever they are. And and going back to what you had said earlier about prior written notice, one of the things that I have I've noticed out here is that I would say a good third of the time when I get a prior written notice um, in response to something I've submitted for a family, it won't make a lick of sense. It will say prior written notice according to 300 point, you know, 503, blah, 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 and um, have right. all that legalese at the top of it. And then they, it's like a form and they'll populate the form with a bunch of gibberish that's just nonsense that doesn't even explain why they said no there's no real explanation. I'm like, okay, well Mm -hmm. go ahead and make the record that you're, this is what you're sending out on a PWN form. And this is what you're going to represent as a PWN because substantively it is embarrassing. And just because you put PWN at the top and, and you cited the code that you're supposed to be following, the fact that you didn't is reflected in the document itself. And it just, it blows my mind what people will put into writing because they think they're so clever. And yeah. it's like, okay. And so uh, one of the things that I think is really valuable that's helpful for parents to know too, is that the regulations, it's uh, 34 CFR section 3003284 a 4 mandates the application of the peer reviewed research to the design and delivery of special education. When you have a bad IEP, you can say, I want to understand the science that underpins this IEP. What peer-reviewed research did you rely on to inform, you know, and of course they don't have anything. And then um, when I ask for something specific and I know I I can reasonably anticipate that they're going to balk at it because it's something they've not done before and it's gonna require them to create something new. I will cite the science that backs up the request that I am making and say, specifically, the regulations require you to apply the peer-reviewed research to the degree that it's practicable. So, if you're not going to do this, when you send your prior written notice, please explain what it is about this science that is not practicable. Yeah. And then they're they're stumped because they don't know how to reply to that. And and again, it goes back to the fact that they don't actually have access to the peer-reviewed research. I'll go ahead and spend yeah. $70 on an article just to, to make my point because I can. Yeah. You know, but I shouldn't have to do that. that That's the problem is that we have this paywall between our educators and the science that would tell them what to do. And what is the politics behind that? Why is there a paywall between our educators and the research that will tell them how to teach our kids right? How is that not part of the public domain? Why Why do teachers not have access to that? And then when you, especially when you have a legal mandate that requires it, you know? And, and it <laughs> blows my mind. Down to the
1: fact that Yeah, that because the laws are not enforced, right? We're just not seeing. For instance, when we look at healthcare, right? We have, you know, standards of care, best practices. You know, we see checklists for everything. We see, you know, doctors getting weekly reports on different new procedures, medications, right? We don't see that in education because again, there's so little penalty. So we're not seeing teachers sort of, you know, given a weekly mailer of. you know, here are some of the programs that we're seeing coming out. Um, here are some of the best practices for working with a specific learning disability. You know, can you update us on how you're implementing this in your classroom? We don't see that because again, there's so little enforcement. There's little, yeah. who Really haven't felt the need to do that.
0: Yeah, well, and I'm thinking we're overdue for a reauthorization of the IDEA, and one of the things that I would like to see in there is beefing up of that enforcement arm, because there's supposed to be, what, 10-year audits or something like that, that we have some kind of audit procedure in California that every once in a while somebody pulls the the short straw and ends up getting audited, and of course, every time they go through there and and examine all the IEPs, it's just a disaster, but then nothing ever gets fixed, and so... (laughs) And It doesn't change anything. It's like, oh, they just documented that it's a disaster and moved on to the next one, and nothing got rectified. And um, we need to speak to that. I mean, as we're looking at all of these broken systems that are just cracked open and exposed raw and wide for the whole world to see now, that there's no covering up, that our social programs are flawed, and that we need to overhaul them, and we need to bring them kicking Mm -hmm. and screaming into the 21st century with best practices, and not just best practices and in teaching but in best practices in operational standards and efficiency and, yeah. and security and privacy. And uh, I know I worked in IT for, for a few years in uh, these huge enterprise class computing environments like Walmart and Sanyo and Volkswagen and all of these big, huge computing environments where you have these global wide area networks in these, these supply chain automated uh, pieces back in the day i'm talking like 25 30 years ago this technology has been around for a long time and if you look at the the degrees of efficiency and the cost savings and the reduction in overhead that is experienced by the industries that adopt all of these iso standards and these automated supply chain things and and the internal and the way they automate their internal business operations that california is starting to head in that direction with respect to individualized person-centered planning that there's a pilot program that's being developed and i don't know when exactly it's going to be deployed but i know ventura county is part of it where whether your department of rehab or your special ed or your county mental health or your welfare or your food stamps or your medicaid or whatever it's one individualized plan one caseworker And your plan calls out to all the different funding sources so that the consumer is not having to chase after the funding. The funding is following the consumer through a single individualized plan, which is only common sense. But it was only achievable by mirroring all of these computer systems together that all of these disparate agencies were working autonomously with and making them able to talk to each other. And so now we're getting to the point where we can stitch all of our our computing resources together to create this interwoven supply chain so that we can streamline how we deliver public services and do it more cost-effectively. But what that also means is that there are no no dark shadows to hide in where funds can be misappropriated. There will be such a stringent degree of accountability that the cronyism and the back-scratching that has gone on will no longer be enabled it won't be possible and so that also will free up a lot of resources and that is another aspect of increasing the efficiency and the fiscal responsibility of the system and the fiscal management of it and so there are people who financially benefit from the system being antiquated and broken right now and they don't want those kinds of changes coming in because there goes all of their opportunities to exploit we're, we're starting to see that public service is going through this transformation that private industry when through when this happened decades ago as these technologies come in and as the public pushes for greater accountability and as we repair and we overhaul our systems we're going to be using the most modern tools we have and so I think that we we can be encouraged that the future does hold a lot of potential for a lot of corrective action and a lot of prevention of things like this happening again in the future but we are not there yet and I think it takes it's going to take all of us pushing For those reforms, because as much as each parent needs to advocate for their child on a child by child basis and and not be afraid of the due process mechanisms, if that's what it takes, you know, but not think that it's like, you know, the panacea, like it's going to solve every problem. We also need to be pushing collectively as a community of people. For reforms that will fix the system in a way where these are no longer the problems we have to deal with and that we have to repair the broken system, not only on a kid by kid basis, but we also have to make it better than it was in the first place. And and so that the next time catastrophe comes, we're better prepared to roll with it. I mean, sadly enough, this was long overdue where the system needed to be confronted on its failures. But I think that parents can take hope that, that we're part of history right now. We're part of fixing it. We're part of making this better for our kids with special needs because all of it's going to have to be reformed. We can't just tape it back together and go back to the way it was. So I think that, right. you know, there's there's a lot of encouragement in what's going on. You know, there's a lot of opportunity and we don't need to be so terrified of the changes that are coming and we need to really embrace them because it's our our opportunity to make it better. I think and I, it's gonna take people like you and me going in there and, and one kid at a time you know saying no this is these are the rules and this is how they apply to this one child and this is this right. is an individualized program and and the the individual person matters you know it's like every vote matters every child matters and whether that child has a disability or not should not be a, de- a, a defining criteria of whether that individual matters or not it shouldn't even be a, a question yeah and so I think that um, what we're doing is a very powerful thing this is a very prescient area of civil rights law right now and you know I, I think that you know regardless of how things play out with what other people do what people like you and I are doing we're on the right side of history with this you know we're enforcing civil rights we're yeah we're enforcing democracy it's we are of the people for the people by the people doing the work to make sure the people are protected and I think that families need to understand that they're not alone that there are folks like that like us out there and we're not that rare you know and the fact that you're licensed in multiple states goes to the fact that you recognize the degree to which there's not enough representation in some places and that you're making it happen yeah. anyway. And so that's really powerful. I think the parents need to, to and I know that there are other attorneys who are, are licensed in multiple states as well. One of the attorneys I work with here in California is also licensed in Alaska. And let me tell you, going out into the middle <laughs> of, of Alaska in the middle of yeah. nowhere and enforcing special ed law is is uh, not an easy thing to do. You're coming in on a like a a bush plane and landing in, you know, somebody's field, you know, and going to a one-room right. schoolhouse to say, Okay, this kid needs speech and language. How are you gonna make it happen? And they still gotta do it. And so it, you know, parents need yeah. to understand that even under the most bizarre and, and in di- in difficult circumstances, it can be made to happen. There's always a way.
1: Right.
0: You know, and, and that it's not a hopeless situation. So I, I think that talking about this with you has been very enlightening and very encouraging. And I think that you've given us a lot of really good information. I do want to remind everybody that i I'm going to include a link to your book with all of our, you know, the the stuff below on the work. Because what we'll do is we, we do a, the podcast, but we also do a corresponding text-only post. Great. That way, all the, the links for everything are embedded in the, the transcript. Yeah. So um, we'll have all of that. And then... Oh, and, that'd be um, fantastic. Yeah. And that way folks know how to get a hold of you and this has been a really good discussion i really appreciate you doing this with me
1: you know you've done a great job as well of of trying to keep parents aware of their rights and helping them feel empowered and i think that's the biggest thing that they need to know is that they have a lot of power in their hands they just need to um know that there are you know lots of us on their
0: side trying to help them along the way right and, and and it means the world to us to be able to do it. It's such an honor to be able to be part of making somebody's life something that, you know, that they're they're happy and they're fulfilled and they're not living in yeah. misery or in crisis, you know, that that we can help people turn those kinds of corners with the kind of work that we do. I mean, it's it's a it's an honorable thing that we do. And, and I'm proud of what we do. So thank you. And. Thank yeah. you for doing this and for sharing your information with us. And hopefully we'll get to do something like this with you again soon. Yeah, I would
1: love it. And thank you again so much and for all that you do.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast version of Podcast Interview. Catherine Michael, attorney at law and author. KPS for Parents reminds its listeners that knowledge, power, solutions for parents and all eligible children regardless of disability are entitled to a free and appropriate public education. If you are a parent, education professional, or concerned taxpayer and have questions or comments about special education related matters, please email us at info at kpsforparents.org or post a comment to our blog. That's info at K as in knowledge, P as in powers, S as in solutions, the number four, parents, parents.org we hope you found our information useful and look forward to bringing more useful information to you subscribe to our feed to make sure that you receive the latest information from making special education actually work an online publication of kps for parents find us online at kpsforparents.org KPS for Parents is a nonprofit lay advocacy organization. The information provided by KPS for Parents in making special education actually work is based on the professional experiences and opinions of KPS for Parents lay advocates and should not be construed as formal legal advice. If you require formal legal advice, please seek the counsel of a qualified attorney. All the content here is copyrighted by KPS for Parents, which reserves all rights.